0: Good morning, my name is Hindel Grossman. I'm the host of Inside Divorce. I'm a divorce attorney, owner of the law firm Grossman & Associates in Newton, and I'm here today to talk with Mark Adema of Bay State Business Brokers. And we're gonna be talking about making a business saleable. what makes it easy to sell a business, and what makes it hard to sell a business.
1: Because, you know, you say at the beginning, let's say, we have a million dollars that we wanna get for the business and then somebody is out of the loop and then uh, four months later you say, well, we have a deal at 800,000 and of course you say, what do you mean at 800,000, what mm-hmm. happened? Yeah. Or on the other direction, you have a deal at a million and a half and yeah. you say, oh, that's great, right? Well, the spouse could say, well, how do you know that's a good price? If you got, you underestimated what the selling price <laughs> is, how come I know, maybe you should have got two million dollars for it.
0: Sounds like you have a little experience with this.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit. <laughs>
0: Good morning, Mark.
1: Good morning, Hindel, and thank you for having me on your show.
0: My pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about um, your perspective on making a business as marketable as possible for sale. So, how does divorce impact the likelihood of a business sale?
1: It depends on the owner and the spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are cooperative in terms of the divorce, then, um, and I don't, you would know better about that, whether it's an oxymoron, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it it can uh, it can affect the sales significantly or or not have an impact and but I think that one thing that you have to do is become even more as um, as a business broker selling a business um, on top of a few things one is right up front having uh, the owner and the spouse be on the same page in terms of the expectations yeah. have them actually sign not just say, oh, yes, I agree with that price, but have them sign the list, listing agreement that says we're going to try and get a million dollars for this business. Yeah. Uh, so that's number one, so that they've written that they've agreed to sell it for an, a certain price. And another thing is, is really to keep everybody in the loop in terms of communication. Because, you know, you say at the beginning, let's say we have a million dollars that we want to get for the business and then somebody is out of the loop and then uh, four months later you say well we have a deal at 800 thousand," and of course you say what do you mean at eight hundred thousand? what happened yeah or on the other direction you have a deal at a million and a half and yeah. you say oh that's great right well the spouse could say well, how do you know that's a good price? If you got you underestimated what the selling price is, how come I know? Maybe you should have got two million dollars for. it.
0: Sounds like you have a little experience with this. Yes, yeah,
1: a little bit, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and not just with the divorcing uh, people, but other people who the, aren't divorcing, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Some of the same issues come up. But.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. You're in a way, if you are representing a business owned by uh, you know one spouse that's in the middle of a divorce or in the process of a divorce, you have two kind of potential clients, both the, the business owner and and the spouse, because a business is a marital asset.
1: Yes. So you just have to be much more aware of the, the spouse and the spouse's concerns and yeah. make sure. It, because We're always looking, obviously, a business broker is getting paid primarily on commission. So we're looking not just at what the size of that commission might be, but how likely is it? And when you have people who are divorcing, it makes it a little less likely because of this conflict. Uh, what if they get back together and just decide we're not going to sell the business, right? That's possible. <laughs> i tell
0: it? you, I don't see that happen very often, oh, but it's I certainly see. possible. Okay.
1: <laughs> we haven't had it happen either, but i always thought that's a possibility.
0: I'm but, always happy when that happens.
1: Yeah.
0: It doesn't happen often enough, unfortunately. So to distinguish this podcast from another podcast that we recorded in recently on um, valuing businesses for the purpose of divorce. The way that you look at businesses is different than the way uh, Heather Tuller talked about um, valuing businesses for divorce on a previous podcast. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Well, I know I listened to her podcast, and of course business uh, valuation people, she talked about the three approaches, the asset approach, the income approach, and the market approach. And she talked about how the valuation people use the income approach a lot, and uh we end up using the market approach a lot because we're talking with people about selling their businesses, and so we're very much interested in what those businesses sell for. So that's one difference. Another difference is that business, people who do business valuations uh, can only look at and take into account the numbers from the business and the other information from the business being sold, whereas we're trying to find what are called strategic buyers who are willing to pay more than that because they have a reason for um, valuing it more. They have some uh, assets themselves. They may have a much larger sales force or they may want to get into the market that the seller is in and be willing to pay more than what the financial value of the business is.
0: Before we get into today's theme, which is (coughs) maximizing a sale of a business and uh, identifying the things that make it harder to sell a business, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your business?
1: Well, Bay State Business Brokers, I started about 12 years ago. and Before that, I had owned a couple businesses myself, and also many years ago, earned an MBA, but then owned two significant businesses. One was an auto body supply business that I built up and then sold to a public company that was buying up those businesses. And then for several years, I owned a printing business that was primarily a trade printer. And so we sold primarily to other printers. And since becoming a business broker 12 years ago, I've sold a number of those businesses, cli- former clients, which I get a kick out of. Uh, um, you
0: mean in the automotive industry, in the printing industry?
1: Exactly, okay. yes. Um, and we have an office in uh, Needham. Um, I have a partner, uh, Sarah Grossman, and- uh,
0: No relation to me, right? <laughs> no relation to you, but a relation to me. She's yes. my daughter, <laughs> okay. a great
1: broker. She's been with the company for eight years. Yes. Um,
0: So it's family business, I like that. Family
1: business, yes.
0: I like that. Um, And you, um, as a business broker, do you work primarily on the seller side or the buyer side, or does it matter?
1: We work primarily on the seller side. We've done some buyer uh, representation, but we really, and, and I should say, on the buyer side, yes, we work with buyers who come to us and say, I'm looking for a business to buy, and we'll show them the businesses that we have available, as well as I started a co broker group several years ago, and so we can show them those businesses also. But we don't do what's called a targeted search. If somebody came to us and said, I want to buy a landscaping business, and I want you to go out and contact all the landscaping companies and see who wants to sell and work with me, and, and I'll pay you to do that, we'll send them to somebody else typically because that's not what we're spending our time doing. We're really spending our time selling businesses and working with sellers.
0: All right, so if today's theme is maximizing a business for sale, um, what, ca- what do you recommend to your sellers how to maximize their business and when do you start the conversation?
1: Well, we start the conversation as early as uh, the sellers want to and and really there are people who come to us and say, I'm thinking of selling in the next five or 10 years I'd like you to, to give me an estimate of what my business would sell for now, and then um, what can I do to make it worth more? Um, and, and if they really wanna go through the whole process, they should also include a financial planner who will then take those numbers and what other assets they have and see how much money they would have if they, when they wanna retire. But uh, some of the things that we recommend, for example, and look at, one is very stable, growing revenues and earnings. Um, And when we look at that, we're looking at a concept um, called SDE or seller's discretionary earnings. Many of the businesses that we sell are sold to individuals and those individuals are looking at all the income and benefits to a working owner because they're going to replace the owner of the business. And as you know, in, in a successful business, many times the owner is taking out legitimate perks out of the business. They may have a company car, they they might have uh, other benefits paying for their uh, retirement plan out of the business and other benefits like that. Um, And so that's included in what we call seller's discretionary earnings on top of the profits of the business, the salary of the owner. Um, And it's also used by lenders to evaluate the business, perfectly legitimate. lenders do like to see that there's some profit in the business, so it's a bad idea to write off all these things and come out with losses every year. That doesn't look good to a lender. Also, declining sales and uh, earnings are a red flag too. Uh, that, with lenders, can make it difficult to get a loan, to, for a third-party lender to uh, loan on the business. And a lot of the businesses that we sell are financed through sba loans
0: i see so declining sales over how long a period of time would you consider a declining sale an 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 obstacle to getting financing
1: over the last three years three years
0: so a two-year decline but then a one-year profit wouldn't be as as concerning to a lender
1: perhaps not they would ask for an explanation Uh right stability in the earn the greatest thing is you know if Sales and earnings are going up five or ten percent every year. That looks terrific.
0: Yeah, growth is really appealing to lenders,
1: <laughs> and profitability <laughs> and profitability, I cash imagine. flow. Yeah.
0: Yes, and uh, and heading in the other negative direction is unappealing to yes. lenders. Yes, yeah. well, that was understandable. But there are market forces that have impacts on on earnings. Sometimes yes. I imagine businesses are cyclical.
1: Yes, and I have sold businesses that weren't making any money. Well, you can do that. If it's a, what we call a B2B business, let's say, a company selling to other businesses, and what they do have is a customer base. And so now you're selling the customer base to another company in the industry. They merge the business into theirs, probably eliminate a lot of duplicate expenses, and can make a profit where the seller was not making a profit.
0: Okay. So what are some other things that make a business more appealing and, and um, successful?
1: Well, one of the things is that financial statements are accurate and they're consistent. Um, That's something that, you know, buyers want to see, particularly as you get into bigger buyers. Um, If you get into strategic buyers, uh, private equity groups, they definitely want to see financial statements that are accurate, look consistent, um, because they're reporting to other people also. It's not just one individual who might be looking at that. And you can explain why it's not everything is doesn't look great. Another thing is um, that the revenues and expenses are on the books. Uh, a lot of times we talk to sellers and it's funny how the sellers who have money off the books think that everyone is doing it, but the fact is they're not. Um, the vast majority of people that come to us are not. They have their money on the books, particularly when it's a better run company. Um, and that makes a business much more saleable. In fact, we usually take a pass on representing sellers who say, "I've got a large amount of money off the books," um, it because it's just too difficult to sell, and it's also very difficult to get a bank to lend uh, to that to the buyer to buy that type of business.
0: So, can you describe what off the books means?
1: Well, when somebody, <laughs> you know, I get paid in somebody—not me, literally—but mm-hmm. somebody comes to us and says you know, I have a business and uh, everybody that comes in with cash, that goes into my pocket and the checks and the credit cards go into the bank. Well, that's an example. You know, well, how much is it? Well, you know, if it's $5,000, we forget about it perhaps, but if it's $100,000 or $200,000, that's that's a big deal. That's significant. It is, yes. Yeah. So
0: that doesn't show up in the financials because the off-the-books money doesn't show up right. in the financials. It makes the company's financials look differently.
1: Look worse because less you're... Less profitable. Right, because yeah. they still have those expenses, but now they have 100000 or two hundred or whatever the number is, yeah. less in income. So it makes the business look much worse.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not that common.
1: Well, oh. not, I don't think it's... I wouldn't say it's uncommon, but mm-hmm. it's not the vast majority of of privately owned businesses. Let's put it that way. I think it's a small minority.
0: Well, I think you have an interesting perspective on that, a good perspective on that, given Mm -hmm. who your clientele is.
1: You know, the other thing I would say, just leaving financial statements, um, make a point is that we generally use tax returns as opposed to internal financial statements um, to look at how the business is doing. Um, And that's what lenders definitely look at. And they'll still use ad backs. In other words, if you've got a company car that's primarily used for personal use, you can probably add that back and that'll be on the tax return. Um, But the tax returns are considered the most legitimate um, statement by a small business because most of these small businesses don't have reviewed or audited statements, they just give their accountant what they put together and the accountant makes it look uh, correct. that's generally what we look at so in terms tax of returns financial. Are the, they're, they're the tax returns They're the most exactly. reliable indication yes, of they the finances. Are. Right. Okay. Um, another thing that it makes a business more help, makes a business sell better is a recurring or repeating customer base as opposed to what you would call projects. For example, uh, construction companies, architects, those types of businesses are harder to sell uh, because the... Uh, Income is not recurring because sometimes, particularly with a construction company, a buyer will say, well, I'm buying a bunch of tools, but what am I getting beyond that? I've got to go out and, and, do, and make all the sales myself. And the most desirable ones are recurring or repeating revenue. And let me differentiate between that. Recurring is really almost like rent is on a uh, real estate. Recurring would be, for example, if there's an IT company doing tech support for businesses, and they have managed services where people pay them based on the amount of computers they have and they just write that check every month, that's a recurring revenue stream. A repeating one is where somebody, a company has a customer base that buys from them over and over. And so that's typical maybe of B2B businesses, a distribution company, a manufacturer that has uh, regular customers, that type of thing.
0: That makes sense, I can understand that. But there are certain kinds of, many kinds of service businesses where we're, you know, they're always looking for new projects and they have a history of finding projects over a long period of time. So yes. does that um, improve the, uh, their eligibility for making them a good marketable company?
1: It does, people look at, um, certainly the more ways they have of getting a regular revenue stream uh, the less it's dependent on the owner who's going to be leaving the business, um, the better.
0: Uh, so that's the key, because when the owner leaves, the contact, the, the likelihood of those projects coming in in the future might change.
1: That's something to consider, right.
0: Okay. So the workflow may change because of the owner's relationships. Um, well, the owner leaves and the relationships may not carry on to get more work. Is that the concern?
1: Right. So it's a good idea for an owner who's thinking that they're going to want to sell within the next few years, to try to transition any real personal relationships to somebody else in the company.
0: Okay, so good financials, uh, recurring revenue, or repeating revenue.
1: Other things, I'm sorry, are um, growth potential. People are buying a business and they pay for what a business has done, but they wanna buy a business that they can grow. So the industry, it's very helpful to have a industry that's growing and to have, and um, have a business where a buyer can see uh, opportunities to add revenues to the business. Okay. So that's another one. Um, and along those same lines, or similar lines, I guess you could say barriers to entry. Uh, if there's easy, if it's easy for somebody to come in and become a competitor, that makes it less desirable, particularly today also with the internet. If somebody can easily sell, do what you're doing on the internet. Now there could be competition from anywhere in the world anytime and you don't even and you wouldn't even know it's coming. Right. So that can hurt a business.
0: Right. So do you participate in putting the price, the selling price on the business?
1: It depends. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And that's when you get into the um, question of who's the the likely buyer. When you're dealing with individuals as being likely buyers, you like to put a price on it because individuals have a tougher time dealing with a situation where there isn't a price and there's no guidance. Whereas if you're dealing with larger companies, private equity groups, strategic buyers that have, you know, CFOs and financial people, they have their own model for what they're willing to offer. And so uh, by putting a price on a business, then what you've done is put a cap on it. Um, And so the feeling is, you know, that offer it without a price. And so right now we have some that we have on the market without a price and some with a price. And it's tip- more typical that we'll have it without a price if we think it's going to be bought by a strategic buyer and if the business is generating maybe uh, 500000 to a million in, in owner income or more.
0: Oh, so that's interesting. So you have some listings some, of clients, of sellers, selling businesses that don't have a price on them. Yes. They'll be dictated by the market and the potential buyers. Right. Okay. And okay, so let's talk about the kind of businesses that uh, you think will be bought by individual buyers and where you do put a price on. How do you calculate the price, the selling price?
1: Well, we're typically looking at the uh, market, what businesses like that sell for. Um, We also do look at the income approach some, but we primarily use the market approach. And we also have access to third party uh, appraisers. And if somebody wants to pay for a valuation, uh, more for evaluation and have one from an accredited appraiser. We we work with them. We put together the information and they crunch the numbers.
0: Yeah, is the emphasis on on the value of the business really on how much the um, owner, the new owner, potential owner, could earn?
1: Yes. Uh, it's more, though, on what the business has done in the past. We're not forecasting for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't want to get into a situation where a buyer says, well, you said it was going to do X in three years, and it's not. Um, so we don't want to do that. Uh, we, so we're looking primarily at how the business has done in the past, and that's primarily what a buyer is looking at. Now, where we can get into disagreements, you know, is, well, do you look at the last year because that's how closest to what the business is doing, or can a buyer might argue that's been a great year, but that's not going to be typical, and I want to look at three years and that type of thing. And it
0: potentially average the three years.
1: It's right. Or,
0: or use the the buyer might focus on the the lowest number of exactly. three years, and the seller on the highest, right? right? Right. Well, I imagine to an individual buyer, the earnings, the salary, and the other. Benefits that in order to that potential buyer are important. How much a person could earn.
1: Absolutely. And, and usually, we're, when we're working with people, we are trying to find out those sort of numbers, and people yeah. don't always think about it and think about adding on to, let's say, somebody has, wants to make $200,000 a year to live on. Well, they need to add on to that something to pay off the loan they're going to need to buy the business. So we may be looking for a business that's throwing off $300,000. So that they have that
0: right right and of course the the relationship between the earnings to the owner and the revenue to the company vary depending on what kind of business it is what the revenues are and what the expenses are
1: right and also what the owner does in the business you know sometimes another factor depending on the buyer if you in particular if you're dealing with let's say a larger buyer We haven't talked about other things about the business, but one is the people situation. So it's not unusual when you have, particularly when you have somebody who is retiring, for example, that a lot of the other people in the company are the same age. They've uh, stayed and been in the business for a long time. Yeah. That can make it very difficult if. A buyer comes in and says i've got to replace six people i can't do that Uh um or if there are lots of family members you know same situation you know the buyer looks at it there's too many people here that that are in the family that very well might leave um another factor we didn't talk about but makes a difference is equipment you know if the two companies could be in the same industry making exactly the same amount of money but if one has all new up-to-date equipment and the other one has all outdated equipment, they're gonna sell for a very different price.
0: Mm-hmm. So the human capital <clears throat> issue is interesting and in, in especially related to f- selling a family business where apparently one of the family members is not that interested in buying and they may all leave if the seller leaves. Right, right?
1: so it's a, it's a factor that, yeah. you know, yes.
0: That, that moving target, very interesting. And what about uh, kind of internal procedures for companies? How important are those?
1: Well, it's very very helpful if um, a company has their internal procedures documented. Um, I've only had, unfortunately, a few that have done that to the degree that somebody could just walk in, pick up the book, and just look. This is how something is done. Um, It's terrific. It also is one reason that... Franchises are very popular with people because that's typically what a franchise has done and we do resell franchises um, but they'll have all their procedures documented and so some and they of course have a very formal training program and people like that. Um, yeah. And it works also with companies. If you have all your procedures documented, so if somebody leaves, you know exactly what to do. For somebody, somebody else can just refer to the book and, and know what they're supposed to be doing. Step right
0: in and rely on the operating procedures. Right. Uh, what's so getting back to kind of something we talked about earlier about the time frame? What's do you think the optimal time frame to get this process started to sell a business?
1: Well, we usually ask for a year, not because it usually takes a year. But the average time it takes to sell a business from the time that a business broker might list that business till when it's sold is six to nine months. And that's typical. And what will make a big difference um, is also the price. Like anything else, if you're asking uh, too high a price, the uh, you know, nothing will happen. It'll and it's a good market. indication mm-hmm. to us that, um, that it's overly priced. I had one recently, uh, which was primarily uh real estate but it was about we had it on the market for a million dollars without any uh, appraisal behind it and i have the seller i said you got to get an appraisal so we don't waste our time uh you know having a deal at a million and then it appraises at uh, five hundred thousand and now sure. you know we don't have a deal anymore yeah and he did that and he got an appraisal at, at a little over six hundred thousand for the real estate we lowered the price to that that figure we quickly had a lot of buyers interested and, and we have it under agreement now
0: uh- so. All right, and prior to the listing of the of the business, how much lead time do you think a business needs to kind of get its house in order to make it most marketable? Well,
1: it depends on the business, and it depends how marketable it's been beforehand. Yeah. You know, some businesses are really on top of all these things and it doesn't take a lot, and then others are not and it takes a long time for them to get everything together. So yeah. it's a hard hard to answer that question.
0: Yeah. All right some come to you in better shape than others, I imagine. Absolutely. Right? Right. Yes. So let's talk about what makes it
1: hard to sell a business.
0: Um, can you identify some, some things that make it really uh, difficult to sell?
1: Well, one thing I would say along those lines, you know, is uh, um, that makes it harder to sell is what a business looks like. I always like to want to meet with the owner at the business to see what it looks like. And I've had a few cases where I've walked in, I don't care what the numbers look like, the place looks like a disaster. And there's no way that, you know, I want to uh, try and sell it because it it has such- Bad curb appeal, huh? Exactly, very poor curb appeal. Uh Um, And I think a lot of times that how it looks is probably how, you know, it's being run too. Probably some indication. Yeah.
0: So Mark, what can you do as a business broker to maximize a sale?
1: Well, I think that the primary thing that we end up doing is trying to find the most and the best buyers. And by doing that, you should get more offers at a higher price. And there are a couple different sales types of sales I've talked about. Um, one is, let's say, to an individual where a lot of our marketing is internet-based marketing. And even though you know everybody's got a website, it doesn't mean everybody has the same number of people coming to their website or that they're marketing on internet websites in uh, the same way, or they're co-broking. We, I was one of the founders of a co-broke group that are, you know, 13 agencies in New England are in, but many are not. So, so you're
0: sharing inventories.
1: I'm exactly. Sorry. Just uh-huh. like the uh, real estate agents do. All these things bring in more buyers and, and lead to, we feel, you know, better offers and higher offers. And another thing which is a related type of sale is, let's say, to a strategic buyer, So now we're looking for companies primarily that might be buyers for the business, and we will identify those, we will get uh, names from the seller who knows his industry, and we will put together a list of companies that we are contacting. I have one right now uh, on the market, and we reached out to about 300 companies in the industry to try to find a buyer. Uh But in addition, we do our internet marketing, still keeping the business confidential because today... It's, it reaches companies all over the world. And if we're talking about we're selling in companies that are still relatively small, let's say the, the most they may sell for 5 or $10 million, that's a small company, and you can't identify all the potential buyers, particularly if it's some maybe in, in California or overseas where we've had some sales. So those buyers though may very well be looking on the internet for a business to buy. So by combining that, reaching out to targeted uh, and identified buyers and internet, it maximizes the number of buyers, the best buy, hopefully we reach the best buyers also. So that I uh, refer to the marketing. And another thing that goes along with that is putting together for qualified buyers and a good presentation on the business that's being sold and not just handing them a bunch of documents and Uh saying, figure it out. Uh Uh-huh. So we do that with all the businesses we're selling, no matter whether it's to an individual or to a strategic buyer. Uh-huh. Those are the things that, anyway, a broker can do to to better the sale.
0: I imagine your presentation materials are very important to give your client good exposure, not just maximize exposure, but also make it look like a quality company.
1: Right. Another important thing that's done in there is to show the seller's discretionary earnings we talked about. So somebody doesn't look at the bottom line of a business and it made $10,000 last year and they don't add in the $150,000 salary and the cars and the uh, retirement plan and all the other perks that might be legitimate taken out of the business and yeah. it's much more. So. We show that so we people make sure are they understand correct information exactly <laughs> yeah, or know how to and, interpret
0: the documents right
1: and mm-hmm. also same way on giving them information on the customer base that they know that the customer base is is not dependent on one big customer and that's a stable customer base and a lot of things like that that would be of interest to a buyer and affect the sale.
0: So does your office at Bay State Business Brokers do the write up on your sellers to do, include in the presentation?
1: We. Both. A lot of times we have some outside writers that we use to do the preliminary draft, and then we will take that and edit it and then give it to the owners to review and approve. I see. We don't use anything without their approval.
0: That presentation must be very important.
1: It is. I've had a number of buyers who have said to us that exactly that and have said how much better it is than some other ones that they've gotten from other business brokers on businesses.
0: Uh huh. That's the added value you bring to your uh, yes. clients as sellers. Yes. What do you recommend to buyers? I suppose from a buying point of view, any suggestions about how to look at a business?
1: Sure. I think a few things. One is to only buy businesses with money on the books. I mean, even I've got a lot of experience, and even if I were buying a business, I want to see the money on the books. Yeah. I'm not okay. So that's number one. Number two, I would say is. Um, go out and get involved in the process. One thing you really see from experienced buyers, and they're typically in a particular industry, is they can move quickly um, because they know the industry, they've seen a lot of businesses in the industry, and when they see the right business, they know they want to get that business They can make a decision. It. They can make a decision quickly. Okay. I've had a private equity group make a decision They signed the confidentiality agreement um, on a Wednesday. A week from that Friday, they had signed the letter of intent. That's how quickly they moved. By The Wednesday, they signed the the NDA. Friday, they had a phone conference. Monday, they met face-to-face. And the rest of the week was putting together a letter of intent. I've had other buyers um, do it in one day uh, when they're very experienced with that industry. Now, I'm not saying everybody should do that, but certainly... If it's a good business, you want to be able to, and it's priced right, you want to be able to move quickly on that and not expect that, well, you know, if it takes me a month to evaluate everything, I can, it'll still be around. It really won't be, you know, there are a lot of buyers out there and there are a lot of buyers that are qualified and have money and are motivated.
0: Ah, so timing is important. Yes. And decisiveness. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, So do you think that manufacturing businesses are easier to sell than service businesses? Something um, with equipment, and, and hardware, as opposed to a service business, an architectural firm, like you mentioned before. For example,
1: d- it depends what they're in. I yeah. mean, because service businesses could be doing a lot of things. I mentioned IT yeah. company, company that does internet technology service. Those are very desirable. Uh, On the other hand, I also use the illustration. Let's say of an architect, not to say that they're you know n- bad businesses, but harder to sell because they're project based. Yeah. Um, and manufacturing businesses are tech generally uh, desirable. Although, if you get into some types of manufacturing, for example, let's say a machine shop, it's a very limited market, and you probably have to buy, find a strategic buyer for that or an industry buyer for a machine shop. There aren't too many. Uh, you know what most individuals are looking for are businesses that they can easily learn and and uh, and manage. So, for example, a commercial cleaning business would be a lot easier to sell. Uh-huh. Because even if somebody doesn't have that background, they certainly are, feel like they can learn it. Yeah. And a bank would lend to them if they had some business experience and management experience. And
0: maybe repeat customers.
1: Yeah, and they yeah. have repeat customers, <laughs> exactly. Recurring customers, <laughs> even. Yes.
0: Yes, I saw from your great website that you had a list of companies sold, and I was fascinated by the list and the variety. You know, liquor stores, pet stores, fitness centers... Uh, personal training franchises, Children's Entertainment and Recreation Center. <laughs> yes. It's great. It's really it must be very interesting work you do.
1: It is. It's interesting also sometimes to see as a former business owner how people manage their businesses and how successful people manage their business and, and really make a success out of it.
0: Well, I appreciate your coming in today for a podcast and listening to what you have to say about maximizing the sale of a business and uh, looking at things that are Uh, Obstacles such as divorces and making a profitable sale. And uh, thanks a lot, Mark. Nice to have you here today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L, or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.